0: Welcome back to Ask and Answered. We're here today with myself, Megan, Eric, and Katie. Uh, we're so excited to have this conversation today with Dr. Angus Mugford, ASK's 31st president. Um, Angus currently serves as the Senior Vice President of Player Development and Performance for the New Jersey Devils. Um, so, Angus, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. Um, and could we just start by you giving us a 30-second elevator pitch bio about where you are now?
1: Well, thank you so much. First of all, I'm definitely honored to be part of this. And um, so, yeah, my role is an interesting one. Um, And the quick pitch is basically I'm really not uh, in the mental performance or sports psychology space anymore. I've I've become a front office executive. Um, So I guess the the quick pitch is that, is that, uh, you know, I'm an assistant to the GM overseeing player development and performance, Uh, ironically, in the NHL. Uh, despite the fact that I know very, very little about hockey. Um, I was recruited there, which again is a a humbling experience after seven years with the Toronto Blue Jays as the first formal appointed performance director in MLB, um, but grew into a vice president role that oversaw performance from scouting all the way through to MLB. But similarly here in the NHL, this is a brand new role in the industry that is linking how we develop players across the whole system, but also the performance elements of, you know, sports medicine to um, strength and conditioning, nutrition, mental performance, and really individualizing the development across the organization and helping them develop their their culture too, which um, is using a lot of, I guess, my my psychology background, but um, has really shifted into more of an organizational role, which, which I'm super excited and, and humbled about too.
2: Great. Thanks, Angus. We're
0: uh, two minutes in and I'm already going to go off script. So it's a good start. (laughs) Um, I'm just curious about like that jump going more into like that admin role. Um, So you mentioned there are some similarities. I guess for you, what was kind of like the biggest difference moving into admin from being more in like that performance space?
1: I think um, it (sighs) Actually, it happened fairly on in my applied experience at IMG, where at one point I had sixty-five individual clients with tennis players and other athletes at um, at IMG, and I realized that I was I was doing lots of work, um, but I wasn't necessarily making an impact. And I think it shifted me from a, you know, I like to think I still have a humanistic, individualized approach, but but I shifted into more of a systems. Um, systems thinking approach that if I could do more to help shape the environment, impacting coaches and the organization, I was able to make things better (laughs) for the individuals. And I think that I, my strengths kind of lined up with that too. And so I recognized that I was starting to have more systems influences and that went from, you know, leading the mental conditioning team at IMG to then doing more, um, uh, corporate and expanded work, working with special operations. And then I got recruited to um, Major League Baseball with a similar mandate. And And I found that, you know, rather than the one-on-ones with players, that I was actually getting as much joy, if not more, from mentoring and working with le- young leaders. And um, so I, I did wrestle with it and, and I miss aspects of it. But I actually feel really fulfilled at you know seeing others succeed. Period. And uh, but uh, there was definitely an interesting evolution, and, and I'm really excited now. It also affords me more of a life blend. So I think, like many young professionals, you know, practicing what we preach and uh, trying to live wholeheartedly in in life as well as uh, as well as professionally has has been a an, a long evolution too. So I'm trying to make the most of that.
2: Angus, I'm really excited because I um, somewhat overlapped on the board, but um, you were kind of coming in as I was going out as the student rep. And so I'm really interested in hearing a little bit about your background. I think I know some of the major milestones that you've hit, but um, we really want to kind of understand the key pathway that led you to this leadership role. And so could you give me just a little bit of your background on your pathway to where you are today? And that can include any significant moments or things that really formed your experiences in sports psychology.
1: Uh, you know, it wasn't the, I was going through the interview process with the, the, um, the Devils and one of the owners asked me a really insightful question <laughs> that unpeeled a lot for me. I think that um, he asked me about the decisions that guided each of my career choices. And I realized that almost from the get-go, I have been a creator <laughs> or a builder, I've I've developed or been fortunate enough to get jobs that didn't exist before I had them, and I realized that like I had these little signature moments all throughout, you know, from being a high school student to undergrad to graduate student, of using curiosity to try stuff out and to not take no for an answer, but to just figure it out. Like even at the University of Kansas, they had just disbanded the sports psychology program but i created my own committee <laughs> and thinking <laughs> with my doctorate I, I created my own program and people were willing to say yes and ultimately when i left they reestablished the program which was amazing but i think the um i think bringing people together and being willing to push and ask why not <laughs> and and bring pe- separate people together um has been a strength and I think at IMG probably where there was this really robust environment I noticed that the best or most successful systems were where uh, the people came together so for even for example the fact that there is a mental conditioning team there you know they're not independent contractors they all come together and they help each other get better was a cornerstone of who we became and, and who they are, like yeah. seeing their growth has been amazing. Um, but I would say the same for when the coach, uh, athletic trainer, the strength coach, like when everyone came and was on the same page, that's where the magic started to happen. And I recognize that uh, one of my favorite programs there was the NFL combine prep program and partly the time constraints and the deliverables were so clear that for 10 weeks everyone had to really be on the same page. And I think that was the ultimate and seeing how that could operate. And and that's where I started to get, I think people started to notice and even with the special operations community, they created an amazing program to hire a lot of staff, but they completely underprepared the management of those. So people said, here you go, here is a strength coach, a trainer, a physio analyst, go. <laughs> and they didn't really understand what that meant to, to build a team. So I actually found myself helping a lot of um, integration and development around those teams. And I feel like I've made a career out of that now because <laughs> it's yeah. it's obvious um, and again, the great teams often just do that really well, but there's not a very good systematic process for that. And, um, and so that's something I've really enjoyed. And I think why I've kind of found myself in that space, um, more.
2: Angus, it sounds really clear that you have, um, a clear set of values that I think come out to me when you're talking, have you ever sat down and thought like, these are the most important values to my professional life as I go through?
1: Uh, yes and no, um, And and I think it was one of the things that attracted me to uh, Mark Shapiro and and the Blue Jays, which I've I've spoken about a number of times, and we had Mark come and talk about that. But I don't think I knew until I met him what values-based leadership really was and how that could influence an organization. And so his compelling mission, moving from Cleveland, where he'd been for 26 years, to the Blue Jays and then asking me to come with him, as his first employee was incredible. And we got to co-design that with the leadership group and the staff in Toronto. Ironically, the values they established are actually really pretty close to my own. So like their mission that their GM really, uh, Ross Atkins really simplified was get better every day in order to win and do the things that everyone wants to do, but learning being a key principle of that. And, um, you know, the five clear ones that, again, not to get too off topic, but collaboration, learning, empowerment, achievement, and respect, those were, um, were all core to the organization. And I realized I'm really aligned with that. And I think perhaps as we'll get into with, with my um, years as president, collaboration across our disciplines of sports psychology as well as how we fit in the ecosystem of performance and wellness services is core to, I think, what I tried to bring. Um, and I think that uh, the empowerment and learning and evolution of us too is core to, to who I am and and how I operate. So I know our, our fingerprint as a president is small and seems probably bigger on paper, um, But it's really about the collection of people, to your point, and yourself, Eric, on the the board too, like how that comes together with the people that choose to step into the arena (laughs) with each board. Um, And uh, so I'm very fortunate to to have had that. But I think those values are consistent with how I operate and and probably why I gravitated towards the, the New Jersey Devils in this new evolution too, that they're early in that trajectory, but... Again, for them to want to recruit somebody who knows nothing about hockey and obviously their development, like, <laughs> and that's bold. Um, but I love that. So,
2: Yeah, I can definitely tell those values come out. And, and then, Angus, was your first job out of KU at IMG? Yes. Yep.
1: So I, I interned there um, with Josh Lifrak, uh in 2003, and then I was fortunate enough within weeks of um, defending and, and wrapping up my Ph.D., Chad Bowling now at the Yankees asked me if I would come down full time and and I said yes. (laughs) How quickly can I get down there?
0: (laughs) And the rest is history, as they say. Wow. That's so interesting. I think it's so impressive of and I think it what Eric to Eric's point about your values is people who after they've been president still stay so involved in committee work. I mean, you and I sit on a committee together right now and it's just the fact that like you're still so involved even after being president and having these roles it's just it's very impressive
1: but it is consistent with uh, i think for a lot of people too is like when you care about the field that you'll say yes (laughs) to things that you're asked for so be careful
2: (laughs) good to know good warning warning statement (laughs) yeah
0: write that down so speaking of the field, we'd like to get a bit of a snapshot of the field prior to your presidential service. So how would you describe the field of sport and exercise psychology and ASP prior to you running for president?
1: Hmm. Um, I think that's a really good question. And I don't want to paint it in a negative light um, because there's so much, it's been such a warm Family for me, like before COVID, I've been there 18 years um, running and I went every year. And a lot of that was honestly to see people and going f- to ask where I literally knew nobody and could only afford one night. Um, it has an amazing pull and community. I think maybe where I would be more critical of it, oh, it's not really critical. I think it's just the evolution, um, is that it was very academic. And I would say somewhat polarized, but actually, it was, I would say it was largely kinesiology based and academic at that point. And I think it's become more diverse as a group, which is great. But I think some of the insecurities of our diversity have stalled its growth in some way. Um, So I think the thing, one of the reasons that I was compelled to, do more was just the shift of the professional landscape that I was feeling and seeing with more jobs coming, but a disconnect about how we are preparing our, our members to um, for those jobs. And I think also preparing our field as a whole to be equipped for that. So, you know, in terms of research, in terms of academics, in terms of preparing future practitioners. It was unorganized. Um, again, I think we still struggle somewhat with our identity, but I could see that there's a huge opportunity in the landscape. Um, the military was just starting to kind of explode, no um, pun intended with, um, with jobs. And, and I think I saw this identity crisis and the shift that, that I, felt strongly about, and I'd had good experience of building at IMG, um, but I knew that the field needs far more IMGs <laughs> for there to be sustainable jobs. So I think that was where I saw an opportunity and a fit where maybe I could offer something that was helpful to, to the community at large.
0: Would you say that is what motivated you to run for president, or was there some other poll that you had to run?
1: Um. I think I am highly service oriented anyway, and I've a lot of friends and people I care about in the community. And I think the conversations that were happening too, I felt like I, I had a voice, I had something to contribute. So I think that was perhaps the thing that pushed me over was that I could see a clear, a clear impact that that would be helpful. Um, so when people asked, Again I said yes. I have a hard time saying no to, but I this time I could legitimately see what they were talking about and I was glad to, to answer the bell.
2: At Angus, when you were um first stepping into the role, kind of what were your big picture goals for your presidency? What did you want to accomplish once your three year term was done? What did you want to say you had done afterwards? I think it
1: was as I just described. I think it was um helping prepare the field better for what a sustainable job market could look like. Obviously that it was somewhat serendipitous with the timing um, of like Jack Watson's wonderful work with the the job task analysis that took, you know, an appropriately long time. I think it may have almost killed Jack, but, (laughs) uh, but he and the process and the committee really, I think tried to do things in the most Um, professional way and not, and again, knowing that we couldn't please everybody, but it was the right thing to do at the right time um, and really help professionalize the industry. So technically that was under, you know, I guess the, the beginning or the end, whichever way you want to say that of, and the launching of CMPC was, was in my window of time. Um, of leadership. And so I'm really proud of the board and everybody involved in in moving that through. I was only a small part of it, but I think that was really key in setting um, a baseline for recognition across industries that this was a legitimate uh, credential that could really help pave the way for more jobs and and more sustained success for the field. So I think um, that was massive. And we're still yet to see the fruits of that labor. But I think we look back in 10 years time, and we'll see how pivotal that really is.
2: That's an interesting perspective that it almost you need that long term vision on it, because so many things are going to happen in 10 years down the line. Um, It's interesting to think about that piece of it.
1: Well, and I will say, so talk about shifts on the eboard. I think that that was a huge one. Because I think when I hear the stories from some of the past president's of how they had to manage, like sell tickets <laughs> for the banquet and count, you know, and have the money and like all of the work that they did on an e board compared to when we had the, the foresight to add, you know, Kent Linderman's team and, and people to help the operations so that the e board could really start focusing on strategy. Because I think everybody was very reactive. And this is part of where the academic piece got me was that people were quibbling over edits to uh, a document rather than thinking about what do we want for our our graduates in 10 years' time, what do we want this to look like? And so, um, granted, I'm not a great editor and and we need that, but I think we need vision and to be bold and to think about what can we be and what does that mean that we need to be doing now to be ready for next. Um, and again, I think that's probably a different lens that that I tried to bring, and that um, I think that Eboard in particular, the Brent Walkers, the John Metzlers, the uh, Alex Kynes, and um, you know some of some of those individuals, you know Tracy Statler, but people that really thinking long term about the field. And and, um, so I think that was a shift from previously that, that so much focus went conference to conference, where we were trying to really build these strategic plans and long term vision. So I think we're seeing some of the benefits of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You said a couple times that your your goal was to help prepare the field better, prepare students better for the field. Um, the CMPC is obviously a huge part of that. But what other things were you trying to do to help those individuals feel like they were better prepared for the field, Angus?
1: I think so. One of the one of the luxuries I have had or opportunities I've had is a seat at the table. Um, with decision makers, so to be talking with the NHL or MLB or, or leagues, talking with CEOs or people with the opportunity to hire, like really helping articulate what the needs are, what are the what's that um, continuum? What is what are the programs of service? What are the demands? I think having a good understanding of that and so helping those conversations at the decision making level is one thing but i think it's helping bridge that connection that is is really huge and and similarly i think the the research to practice element has often been highlighted with asp and something that it's it's done sometimes really well, and sometimes not. Um, But I think that the better bridge we have around that, the more sustainable the field is, you know, can, is research answering the questions that we have around practice and other practitioners using the the research and best practice to impact their clients. And, And I think when you are connecting those dots, that's when you have real success. And I think that's been sporadic at best. And so being strategic with that, and I think we're starting to see that now. You know, the fact that military contracts have been renewed and continued and grown. I think the perforation of jobs in the pro sports industry is also evidence that good practice is happening and teams are recognizing value. The fact that we have um, development is now the new analytics if you like or the new money ball in baseball and and becoming that in hockey and other sports like i think people are seeing that yes acquisition is important but if you can get acquisition and acquire people a a more entry-level area and, and get a big return on development then organizations are going to do that but i think that we need to understand that with a with a burst of jobs, we need a lot of qualified people going in there. and and so if there's a disconnect between the two, you've got real trouble.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think so often in ask we hear like the science practitioner model, and that's built into a lot of the presentations. and I really like the way that you described that of what does that actually look like? and then is the field supporting what this model that we're almost creating? It's interesting. Okay, so to take a step out of kind of the history of ASP for a second, um, we would love to hear a story from your time in ASP. Um, this is my favorite part of the whole podcast, uh, which I guess I should, I should say my favorite part is learning about the history and all these important things. But anyway, um, so any kind of story that brings a smile to your face, and we love it when stories include other ASP members. So anything you want, the floor is yours.
1: Man, I, I have a lot. <laughs> like, certainly when I think of conferences, I certainly smile many times. And maybe I'll, I'll just share a few, like, touch on highlights as opposed to one belly laugh of a story. Um, you know, and, and I alluded to the fact that, so I eight, yeah, it's, oh, man, 20 years minus the two COVID years. Um, but, yeah, 2002 in Tucson, only having enough uh, money for one night in a hotel, is a kind of crazy starting point. But, uh, you know, it's funny, the um, hotel rooms are kind of a story in themselves, I think, for a lot of ASP students, especially, and, and even a professional IMG piling as many people as we could into a, into a room to be able to split the costs. But I, um, you know, I think some of my my favorite memories have involved my inner idiot as well, um, which is a fond term by... I call him my Kiwi dad, but many ASP professionals will know Dave Hadfield or Hadders uh, from New Zealand Rugby and his uh, incredible spirit and voice, um, which in Portland brought the house down at karaoke of Swinging Sweet Caroline, um, which is it was an amazing rendition of that. But his, his inner idiot and my inner idiot are, are very good friends. And so there have been moments in... Uh, conferences where he's asked me to add in a word or two into um, into speeches. One one included Turkish delight, which I had to use in um, in a conference session seamlessly, except for the roar of laughter from him in the back row. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so, so we've had some playful moments, and I think that again, that is one of the gifts of ASP of. Being professional, taking what we do seriously, but not ourselves too seriously, and so I think that combination of of sharing um, and becoming better professionals, but also having fun at the same time.
0: Inner idiot, I love that. <laughs> um, and now I have to know: How did you work Turkish delight in? Do you remember the context that you were able to use it?
1: I think I was in the I was in the flow state and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm blacked out. I've, I have no idea. <laughs> but, uh, but I think, for if I do get asked to speak at Asp again, um, then I think for those in the audience, listen carefully. And if there's something that seems really wacky and out of context, and there's a smile on my face or a big laugh from the back, that is what's happening. So. <laughs>
2: Sounds like an assignment for our students. With the next time we hear Angus talk, Megan, whoever gets it gets the five extra credit points, and we can uh, we can bring it home for that. <laughs> okay. Oh, outstanding! Okay, so we're gonna shift back, Angus. So you've been involved in asked, You said eighteen-ish, like twenty years. Who knows if those COVID years count, right? Um, but in what ways do you feel the field has evolved? And you spoke a lot about that with your own presidential piece where you were talking about, you know, the CMPC, but thinking about where you came in 18, 20 years ago to where it is now, how do you feel like it's evolved both good and bad about that evolution?
1: I'm not sure there's been any bad. Um, I think, you know, a friend of mine, an Australian cricket, had a has a saying that's sadly true of many leadership groups and, and um, industries, but he calls it um, male, stale, and pale. And so I, I think in many respects, you know, the, the you see a lot more diversity now in our groups, which I think is fantastic evolution from a previously very white male um, dominated landscape. And so I think seeing the breadth of who we are change has been great. Um, I think... The, the, the diversity of um, specialisms within sports psychology, too, is a, a great evolution. You know, the fact that we've seen, as I alluded to, with you know, I am a kinesiology education based person, but I think that the fields get stronger with the, the diverse aspects of clinical psychology, counseling, psychology, and even psychiatry becoming part of this community. Um, but I think where we still need help, but I've seen progress, is the inclusive nature of that diversity. So rather than an us versus them, um, it's a, it is a we, and it is an us. And, and again, I think one of the, one of the strong voices I have brought to the table for professional baseball and, and hockey and, and to an extent, you know, I've I have a lot of people reach out to me. From front offices about about a the parallel of physical uh, the physical continuum spectrum and and again something I, the perspective <clears throat> I try to bring to our community is we're not that different like this is fight that the um, athletic training community and strength and conditioning community have had for decades before us um, over who has who has the better degree or who has the rights to do X, Y, Z. And I think when we're looking at it, a framework of illness to wellness, you know, everybody has, um, has involvement, but there's specialisms that dictate what we can and can't do at different ends of the continuum. And so it's not about being a great athletic trainer or a great strength coach. I truly believe players are best prepared and supported when there's a great relationship between the athletic trainer and the strength coach. And when that scope of practice is at, at its best and the communication and support is really good, players thrive. And I think the same is absolutely true of the, um, you know, the, the clinical expert and, you know, more of a strength expert around, around mental skills and mental performance. And when we get that continuum right and collaboration, right, Again, I think that's where the magic happens and that um, we're in a market now where it's there's more opportunity and more budget um, to go around that this is not a one-stop shop where we have one person who's delivering services across all of the spectrum. Um, and again, it's why professional leagues um, designated uh, strength and conditioning roles from athletic training roles, even if someone was dual credentialed. And uh, and I think that evolution can happen in the, the mental performance and mental health space as well. But we've just we've gotta make an impact and we've gotta do it right. And um, and I think that we're we're on the way, but it'll be interesting to see how that evolves in time.
0: What do you and I don't know, maybe this this is probably a really long question. But what do you feel like gets in the way of that collaboration? Because I just feel like as we're talking about it, it just, it makes so much sense, right? To have different people with different specialties doing different things, but being in the same umbrella. But obviously it's not as straightforward as that. So in your opinion, since you've been in the leagues for a while now, like, what do you think that that break is?
1: It's, it's multifactorial. It's clearly, there's no one thing. But I think that... um I think that actually the system is designed that way. And so if you think of organizations, and ASP is is different, but it it might not be in time, um, is that when you look at organizations like the NSCA or NATA, you know, who I have a lot of respect for, they're also financially incentivized to grow themselves. And so when you look at degree programs, you look at training pathways, they're really quite linear. And while you do have to check a box that you've done a, a, t- a class in psychology, you've done a class on the other side. They are driven <laughs> to um, disciplinary work, not interdisciplinary work. And I think that's one of the differences you see in programs in Europe or Australia or other places where it's it's a lot more diverse in terms of the education, um, and that's partly a resource issue that you know teams don't have, <laughs> you know, the luxury of some of the the finances that go into college sports in the United States, um, that you get a much more interdisciplinary education and, and that doesn't really happen as much in North America. And so you end up with a, you begin with a silo and so people continue a silo. And then you mix in at the professional level. So one of the key things that I had to work through was the amount of fear and toxicity in a lot of those environments too. So, you know, I, I had a wonderful employee as an athletic trainer. Um, and at that point, I think it was about 36, seven years, he'd had one-year contracts. And if you think about it's actually a, a mixed message, right? It's enough insecurity that a lot of people just keep their head down, don't rock the boat, just do your job to try to get your contract renewed for a year. But it's uh, also reinforces status quo, right, and of not pushing – the envelope and, and learning and so it creates this double whammy of um of fear and toxicity and trying to protect your job and i think that's where we see the, some of the politics come into it as well of people who are um, fearful that they're not going to be able to get another contract um, and so they are much more self-protective and not as altruistic about helping others across the continuum. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of examples. Uh, I know Ken Revis always used to say he'd make a lot of referrals to clinical folks and he never received one back. Um, but, you know, it goes both ways when you have, you know, practitioners without an expertise who are not collaborating and making referrals appropriately too. So there's a lot of examples of things going wrong um, and it, we need to overcome a lot of, of, um, of those factors. And again, I, it's one of the things I appreciate about ASK because it is diverse in the uh, the boxes to check the education and the whole process to become a cmpc and allow the inclusion of the the spectrum and um continuum so i think the more that everyone feels safe um to uh to be inclusive and embrace that embrace our differences and um i think the more likely we are to be successful but we can't be complacent that that just happens naturally because we've shown over time it doesn't. Um, And so again, I think being deliberate and fostering that inclusion is, is a really important part of what we have to offer.
2: Angus, there's so many things that you said in that, that I want to go deeper on. One thing you said is, um, and I 100% agree with the, we're brought into silo and we stay in a silo. Um, Do you think that In coursework, we can correct that as far as simulations, or is that only something that you really see in the real world that you have that experience going through?
1: Um, I think, well, kind of like the job task analysis, I think it's reverse engineering. What does good look like? And um, again, that's one of the successes that I've probably had with creating the environments I have with the Blue Jays and and what we're doing at the Devils 2 is it's when the outcomes are collaborative, everyone it starts to, to to involve it that way. So for example, one one easy way we did that was using prepare, compete, recover as our framework for routines. So it's not mental preparation, physical preparation, skill preparation. It's preparation, right? And so if I'm an athletic trainer, a dietitian, coach, whoever, I am in an environment of thinking about how do we best prepare ourselves and players to compete. And I think when we create shared language um, and shared opportunities to show up and deliver, um, that's where we start to get change. Um, And that happens physically as well as philosophically. You know, when we arrived and trainers would go in one room, you know, and the site guys would go in another room. Like everyone's physically splitting themselves up. And they're thinking about things from how do they deliver? I need this time window because I need to deliver X. And as soon as we get away from that and say, no, <laughs> we've, the player needs to be ready at this time. How do we best work through that to help empower them to prepare themselves? You know for competition and likewise how do we prepare ourselves to show up to compete and do our work each day so i think people impose a lot of self limits um on that and they'll do that in groups too so getting people around the table together can begin in grad school <laughs> you can begin anywhere but really reverse engineering what we're trying to execute um and i will say that that doesn't happen at. Um, very well in a lot of professional environments either so it's not a unique problem but i would look at the models that are doing it well and try to better understand what those what those are how those operate and again that was one of the reasons i wanted to get involved more at ASP because i was having i was again i had a seat at the table and was very fortunate to be in that role but i saw ASP kind of missing the missing the boat on those conversations and the fact that we're being asked for something but we're not preparing people for that and uh, again Dr. Taryn Morgan, um, Duncan Simpson, people at IMG, we, we were getting grad students uh, coming in um, from great programs but that didn't necessarily mean that they're ready to deliver those programs you know in a in a classroom or on a court with a bunch of noisy kids who didn't care about what you had to say or what your degree was, right? Um, So, again, we saw there is a a delta between graduating and being impactful, and so how do we best help people be prepared for those moments? I think that was something I'm, I'm still excited about.
2: Yeah. The other thing, thank you. That was an uh, awesome answer. I love that. The other thing I was thinking of is you talked about that that individual who had a one year contract consistently, right? And the the short term nature of that, and the lack of kind of um, just trying to, to push themselves forward because they're just trying to get that renewal. Um, I know it's slightly different in Ask because it's a three year term as president, but really you're coming in for a one year term. And so, how do you feel like that? that one year term can impact the amount of change one person can have on the organization. I know you've already mentioned the collaboration you had with Brent, you know, Rob, John, those type of people, but do you think we need to expand it to one year or is that too much to ask for those individuals in the field?
1: I think, uh, I think I look at leadership differently anyway. Now I think that, um, I think it's less about the title and more about influence. And so I think whether it's, um, I think there's a cliche obviously with a, the, a political role where they talk about the first 90 or hundred days of being president, I think where the things that you want to roll out, you really have to get started quickly uh, specifically. But I think it's less about policy, um, and more about more about the collaboration and and the discussions and the influence that you have. Like, uh, who else is on the e-board with you? I think really matters probably far more than I realized at the time. And I think Megan, what you said about just continuing to be involved in the things that you you know you can <laughs> impact, or, or have a voice that people want in those discussions is really important. So I think it's less about that one year. Um, But maybe I needed that one year to feel clearer in my own vision and to really think about what that was. Um, But I, I think, you know, I really trust the group that are in there. And I think also one of the bits of feedback, a lot of the past presidents also had at the time was, support and an advocation of doing what you think is right for the field. Um, I think while people may not have agreed of what those individual things were, I think that actually all past presidents were supportive of, Hey, do what you think is right. Um, And it's hard to go too far wrong (laughs) when your heart and intent is in the right place, you know, and, and hopefully that's an inclusive process and discussion, which, um, you know, I think is, uh, is, is really important.
2: Great.
0: So to touch on one of the points that you made earlier about there being a difference between graduating and then actually doing the work um, with clients. Um, I think that's an important point to touch on, especially as a current graduate student. So what advice do you have for current students and new professionals entering into the field?
1: Um, Great question. And I think the two things I typically say are one, your dream job probably doesn't exist yet. And that's okay. I think my last, uh, since 2004, I think all of my jobs have been created. That there's not been one that I've kind of moved into that already existed. So, That's one. And that makes it uh, harder in some ways because it's harder to prepare for, but opens up the world of opportunities for you. And I think practicing what you preach is a really key part of that. Um, You know, understanding yourself as a performer, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, being deliberate and reflective and a learner, like all of those things will make you a better professional but they'll also help you navigate that level of complexity as well. So I think really realizing that what you are learning and working through are things for you to lean on and, and develop and, and use as well too and I think sometimes it's easy to forget that um, and especially if you get dis- disheartened you know while I, I make my story and my story is incredibly fortunate right time right place. You know, I've, I've definitely landed on my feet over and over. But the, um, I think one of the, the things that I recognize too um, is just being, leaning into that and taking, you know, using my curiosity to take risks, positive risks, and, and really making the most of those things. And, you know, when I, I got that job at IMG, What I don't usually say is that my rent was $150 a month at that point in Kansas. Um, I had been turned down for a lot of things. I had two teams that I was working with. I had one class that I was teaching and I had no idea what else I was gonna be doing. So like, you know, it wasn't like this destined plan that I had and just everything fell into place. Like I definitely had to hustle. Like I I had a bicycle. I didn't even have a car like my hair would freeze when I would go and get my grocery shopping. So this was not like silver spoon in my mouth by any stretch. But I think that, um, you know, when you're prepared and sometimes you'll get those breaks, you know, but um, you you probably need to lean on some of those skills in the meantime.
0: Thank you. Angus, what do you hope your impact on the field is going to be?
1: great question um, I think I think that I would like to and I probably have been a voice um, to advocate for the field of sports psychology in a market that is looking for solutions um, and so I, I like I would like to help map a path for people and for the growth of the industry and um, and sometimes be a voice to I think people who want to be part of that, but are discouraged. My first day of my undergrad in England, eight of us were on a double major. And um, the professor at the time asked who wanted to be a sports psychologist. And we all put our hands up, I think. And um, and he said, there's no such thing. <laughs> and so <laughs> you talk about bursting a bubble um, and, And I probably did go away from that for a while, but I think I understand his intent and what he meant, I believe, was that just like I said, that dream job doesn't exist yet. Um, So your eyes should be wide open that there are many easier ways to make a living. But I think if you're passionate about it, you can make things happen and, and use those skills in a lot of different industries. But if you're really passionate about it, then, then do it and but find a way and know that you'll have to to grind and and really lean in and practice what you preach about that to make those opportunities happen um but i think i can hopefully be an example of that um but i think also actually help on the decision maker end to you know create more roles which i've certainly been lucky enough to do and hire a lot of people and help recommend and see other jobs grow you know from that too so that's what I hope for.
2: Thank you. Angus, I, I love your perspective because I think sometimes, especially individuals new in the field, see you where you are and think, oh, that was just such a linear path to get to there. And obviously it, it wasn't, it had a lot of twists and turns and you made a lot of, uh, made the most of the opportunities that were presented to you. And I really appreciate that you're, um, you're at those tables with those stakeholders for the field and for what's moving forward. Um, as we close the interview, I, um, I want to ask, is there anything that you want to share that you think is important, maybe about the field, about ask that we haven't talked about, anything that, that maybe was in the back of your mind and you think we should have asked, anything like that that we're at?
1: I'm I'm really curious what you were going to ask. I think that's probably one of the things I've missed from not being at the conference is probably a lot of those informal discussions to really understand what's what do people care about in grad school and, and you know what are what are new people coming out right now finding about the job market and you know, knowing that post COVID we are we are going to a new era. Some of it is exciting because I think people have seen that we don't have to do things the same way, um and we can evolve and be better. But I also know that the financial and implications are really challenging for a lot of people too, um, but the conversation around mental health is a lot more constructive, and I think there are a lot more opportunities. And um, so I, you know, I've, I am curious on where this evolves in the landscape. Um, but I think that uh, I think we're going to have more opportunities. So the more that we can continue to learn and be open, and and especially the inclusive nature of that continuum I think is really critical. So while, you know, we are seeing a lot more around mental health and I know for the non-licensed people that could be, um, threatening. And I really hope it's not (laughs) because there is room for everybody. Um, and I think the more progressive we are around that, the better it is going to be for everybody. Um, because certainly the, the health and wellness side of people development, as well as the performance aspects are, are, um, are so linked and intertwined. I think that I really hope that we um, really, you know, grow with that concept uh, rather than against it.
2: It's great.
0: Angus, thank you so much. I think as a field, we're so lucky to have your voice and your advocacy and, Um, just the truly like collaborative nature of everything that you've shared. I feel really lucky and honored to be part of the conversation. So thank you so much for sharing your story Um, and everything that you've given into the field. I hope that you've gotten an ounce of it back um, because you certainly deserve all of that.
1: Oh, thank you. definitely more than an ounce. I've built a career on it. So I'm very grateful, but thanks for having me on here. I really appreciate it. It's
2: fun. We've asked, Angus has answered, and we'll see you all next time.